Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson, and happy Valentine's Day. And I'm David Moore. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's interview with Alexis Goldsmith of Beyond Plastics about the advocacy day scheduled for Wednesday, February 15, to advocate for environmental legislation. Then we will hear part one of Willie Terry's audio excerpts from the Hudson Valley Community College program featuring Bobby Seale, co-founder of the Black Panther Party. Later on, we will hear Willie Terry speak about Black History Month and labor. After that, we talk with Sean Collins about the history of local unions and the local chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Finally, we will hear Carolee Bennett read her poem, How to Save Yourself, as well as discuss with Tom Francis what inspired her to write her 2010 manuscript. But first, here are the headlines. Troy Deputy Mayor Chris Nolan has decided not to run to replace his boss, Mayor Patrick Madden. Madden is term limited. This leaves Rensselaer County Legislator Nina Nichols as the only candidate seeking the Democratic uh, party endorsement. City Council President Camila Mantello is seeking the Republican and conservative lines for mayor Tuesday. Attorneys from Monsanto Company filed an emergency motion late last week asking a Missouri judge to let them reopen discovery in a massive pollution contamination case so they can learn more about a so-called investigation into noted PCB research David Carpenter the longtime director of the Institute for Health and the Environment at the State University at Albany. Many community groups have rallied to Carpenter's defense, saying that SUNY is merely caving to a powerful company that has been forced to pay billions in damages due to their role in making PCPs and other toxics. The so-called investigation stems from the efforts by Monsanto attorneys to review the fees Dr. Carpenter receives from testifying, even though he donates his fees to his graduate students and the university. The Times Union reports that progressive legislators and organizers were at the Capitol on Monday, renewing calls for higher taxes on state's wealthiest residents and corporations as they express displeasure with a system that they say allows the richest New Yorkers to avoid paying their fair share. Recent rate hikes on the wealthy are expiring. Groups are seeking $40 billion in revenue to invest in human needs, education, and responding to climate change. New York has the greatest wealth gap in the country. The wealths of America's top 1% of earners increased by $6.5 trillion in 2021, according to the Federal Reserve. Inflation nationally continues to slow down from its June high of 9.1%, but still remains at the relatively high rate of 6.4%. More expensive gas, food, and clothing drove up January's prices. New York allows students to be suspended up to 180 days, an entire school year. As a result, thousands of students have kept out of school for months or more, cut off from their peers and receiving just an hour or two of instruction per day. 
a bill recently reintroduced in the legislature, would ban suspension of more than 20 school days under most circumstances. At least 15 states have similar laws in place. Lark Street Mercantile, a retail space that features locally made products, will be closing its doors in downtown Albany after three largely successful years in business. The Times Union reports that the last day to shop in the store will be Saturday, March 4. Vendors will be offering special sales at their booths up until the location's closure, the Post says. The store became too much work for the Souls staff person. That's it for the headlines. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmmmediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. On Wednesday, February 15th, environmental advocates will gather at the Legislative Office Building to meet with legislators to urge support for the Bigger, Better Bottle Bill and the Packaging Reduction and Recycling Act, as well as the Extended Producer Responsibility Act. Mark Dunley speaks with Alexis Goldsmith about the significance of these legislations. We're joined by Alexis Goldsmith, uh, who is the organizing director for Beyond Plastics. And they're part of a group of environmentalists who are holding a waste reduction and recycling advocacy day on Wednesday, February 15th, going to start at uh, 930 in room uh, 711A of the uh, LOB. Uh, Alexis, what's, what's the day about? Well, thanks for having me, Mark. This advocacy day is a chance for New Yorkers to show up and meet with the legislature, members of the legislature, and tell them why it is so important to pass a strong extended producer responsibility law for packaging that will ultimately reduce the amount of single-use packaging that the market is being flooded with, improve recycling, and get taxpayer relief. Um, And we're also supporting the Bigger Better Bottle Bill, which will modernize New York's existing container deposit system um, by raising the deposit to 10 cents and also expanding the types of containers that are covered under the law. Now, I understand the general idea behind extended producer responsibility is to to make, first of all, the producers more financially responsible for the waste that they produce. but also to reduce the amount of waste. Now, there seems to be a whole bunch of different bills. The, the governor, once again, put something in the budget. Uh, Senator Harkham, New Jersey Senate Finance Committee or Environmental Committee, has a bill in. And then Senator May has a bill that a lot of the groups like Beyond Plastics. What's sort of the difference between the bills and, and how are the legislators and the governor trying to negotiate their differences? So all three of those bills um, would get taxpayer relief, would do what conventional EPR does, which is get consumer brands and product makers to pay for the end of life waste management of their packaging, um, recycling, disposal, and incineration, which is what consumers are currently for. But the biggest difference is in how far these bills go to actually reduce packaging that is not recyclable, packaging that is ending up in landfills and incinerators, um, particularly single-use plastic packaging, how far these bills go 
go to improve recycling and how far they go in terms of the way that the law is set up. Um, some extended producer responsibility programs put consumer brands in charge. We see that as putting uh, similar to putting like fossil fuel companies in charge of emissions reductions. So we want strong transparency um, and strong enforcement. Now we're supporting Governor uh, uh, Senator May and Senator Harcum's extended producer responsibility bills. We want to keep extended producer responsibility out of the budget. Um, we want the Senate to combine the best aspects of these two Senate bills and then introduce work with the assembly to introduce the same as bill and pass it in the legislative session. Now, I understand one of the issues that have been somewhat fought over, not sure if it's in these bills, is that, you know, some of the waste industry has been promoting this concept of chemical recycling. Is that a good idea? Um, absolutely not. <laughs> and thanks for bringing it up, because this is a contentious issue um, that we're seeing play out nationally. So we know that recycling for plastics doesn't work. Um, the plastics recycling rate in the US is at 5%, and it's never worked to um, reduce the use of new plastics that are made from fossil fuels. Now the American Chemistry Council is, is coming out with basically plastics recycling 2.0. They're calling it chemical recycling or advanced recycling. We call it false recycling because what it does is it it's a technology or a suite of technologies that turn plastic into fuel to be burned. It's not turning plastic into new plastic. Um, it's not recycling in any sense of the word. We see it as incineration and a threat to environmental justice and also a threat to undermine our efforts to actually get single-use plastics out of packaging. So Senator Mays and Senator Harcum's extended producer responsibility pro proposals are very strong on saying that chemical recycling or false recycling would not count towards recycling goals. Um, and we want to keep it that way. Now, you also mentioned earlier on the, uh, what we used to call the bigger, better model bill. And that was, you know, started 40 years ago. Um, and I mean, I actually had a hand in starting it, but th th that seems to be in very effective uh, in, in reducing waste and increasing recycling. I mean, 40 years has gone by. Well, why is there, I guess, resistance to actually, you know, upgrading it 40 years later to reflect both, you know, what nickel is worth, you know, 40 years later, but but also how the, the market has changed in, in terms of some of the bottles that now, you know, you, you see pretty prevalent at the stores? Well, the resistance really is coming from consumer brands. Um, the beverage when, when, you, when you say consumer brand, what do you mean by that? I mean, the beverage makers, Coke, Pepsi, um, they don't want to pay for the program. They don't want to pay for the deposit program. And nationally, no new bottle bill program has passed in decades. Um, there's 40 states that don't have bottle bills, even though they're extremely effective at reducing roadside litter and improving recycling rates. Um, so in New York, we regulate the, we determine which bottles um, must be covered by the liquid that's in it and not by the actual material. So Coke and Pepsi, if they're making um, a tea versus a carbonated beverage and it's in the same exact packaging, 
The tea is not covered um, while the carbonated beverage is. So this doesn't make any sense. We need to um, modernize the bottle bill so that it's covering the material by type and not by the liquid inside. We're asking to expand it to include wine, liquor, nips, juice, uh, kombucha, and um, most containers that aren't currently covered. And then the deposit has not been raised since the 80s. Um, if it had kept up with inflation, I think it would be at about 25 cents at this point. So a 10 cent deposit is a very modest increase, and but it would get us to a 90% redemption rate. We've seen it in other states that have a 10 cent deposit. And not only that, it would double the income for canners, especially those canners in New York City. And these are workers who are doing an environmental service by collecting bottles for redemption, and they're doing it as their income. And so they deserve a raise, and it just makes sense to modernize the bottle bill. So on, on Wednesday, February 15th, the day starts, people can come in on 711A at 9.30 in the LOB, and then 10.30 is a press conference, and the so-called million-dollar staircase and, and the Capitol and then, then lobby visits. Is there still time? Can people just show up, show up to the press conference? If they show up, can they join a lobby team? Sure. So people can email me, Alexis Goldsmith at Bennington.edu, or look up beyondplastics.org, email us through our website if you want to join. Um, you can also join us at room 711A in the Legislative Office Building at 930 on Wednesday. If you want to join the lobby day and we'll we'll split you up with teams the meetings are going to go 11 till 3. um and there's just a couple other things i want to say while we still have time so listeners might be familiar with the um climate law scoping plan that was finalized in december this is the climate action council's plan for how new york state will meet its um mandates in the climate law for emissions reductions and environmental justice and that scoping plan says explicitly phase out single use packaging and the main legislative mechanism to do that is extended producer responsibility it says it very clearly in the scoping plan so extended producer responsibility for packaging is coming to new york state no matter what but the Level is in the details as to whether we're actually going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and achieve environmental justice. We need an EPR law that will um, reduce packaging, and both Senator Mays and Senator Harcum's bills call for a 50% reduction in packaging over 10, 12 years and 10 sorry 10 years and 12 years respectively. And one last thing, toxics in packaging. So both the Senate bills address toxic chemicals that are found in food packaging and all packaging like phthalates, bisphenols, mercury, cadmium, benzene, toluene. Um, there's a list of 12 chemicals that we need to get out of packaging to protect human health. And it's imperative that we do this because these chemicals are having a negative effect on people and their endocrine disruptors and mutagens so I just wanted to say um, that these bills are very strong, and we hope the legislature will pass them this session. Well, well thank you very much, Alexis Goldsmith, Beyond Plastic, February 15th, starts 711A930 LOB. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Once again, to participate in this advocacy day, meet in the LOB 711A at 9.30 a.m. Wednesday. Moving right along to our second segment, in the first part of this segment, Willie Terry has an on-stage interview with Ainsley Thomas, the College Chief's Diversity Officer at the HVCC Black History Month program featuring historical figure 
Bobby Seale, co-founder of the Black Panther Party with Huey P. Newton in 1966. Willie Terry, the Roman label correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk magazine. Uh, today is Thursday, February the 9th, uh, 2023, and I'm here at Hudson Valley Community College where they're having a Black History Month program featuring Bobby Seale, who is co-founder of the Black Panther Party. Now, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton co-founded the Black Panther Party in 1966 at Merritt College in Oakland, California. Now, Bobby Seale is being interviewed on stage by Ainsley Thomas, who is the Chief Diversity Officer at Hudson Valley Community College. Let's uh, listen in. because he was in law, night law school, in a private law school. He was not in a college or university law school. He was in a private law school, because he couldn't handle that other stuff. Cause, but anyway, he, 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 dealt, he dealt with one of the immediately in the police brutality, one of uh, all black people who didn't have a right to jury trials, et cetera, and, and one other point, and uh, people in prison. But the other points, we want full employment for our people. That's me, Martin Luther King. <laughs> we talk about employing black folks in economics. Our economics is interconnected with our civil rights. Our civil rights is our economic rights. I'm with King on that, is it, to resist what we then, back in those days, called it the pig power structure. Now, the reason we start calling them pigs because in history, the Germans hated to be called swine. <laughs> and so, and, and Emory Douglas was sitting around, we were talking, et cetera. Next thing you know, Emory Douglas drew a four-legged pig with a police hat on <laughs> and his utility belt with a put etc. And he wrote a list, support your local police. <laughs> <laughs> so he put that in one of the first and second issues of the Black Panther Party newspaper that I created that newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> That book, he started everything. He started everything. He's seven years younger than me. He didn't even have uh, understanding about what, what was up. He was hanging around me because me and Bertrand Morrell organized the first black student organization at Merritt College. And at the same time, we was, that was getting our first African American professor at that college at the time. So I started the party. I'm the one that signed the thing to do to open the office and inspect the pay. I did the layout for the Black Panther Party newspaper. So I'm just trying to get this, this history straight about what our resistance was. And what was the resistance was, we are resisting the oppression, the exploitation, et cetera. We want to provide new guards for our people secured and happy. Meaning what? He had signed 
the Bill for Voting Rights. This is 2000, uh, uh, it's two years before I started the Black Panther Party. I started the Black Panther Party in October 1966. And boom, here I am. I didn't quit my job after four years on the Gemini Vista program. I wanted to work in the grassroots community. I set up a program in North Richmond, California, out there in that, in that African-American community. And me, three white students and three black students, we were all working for canvassing in, in connected with, with the Long Poverty Program. And we would meet to assess our canvassing but we got to discuss it together about how we uh, do something that, that, that's real economic and, and, and really good for the community, et cetera. And I fell back on and I said, hey, Martin Luther King, we have to put up a program. I said, one time to sit up here, you, you, like, you get a lot of intellectuals, the basic socioeconomic structure, and the adverse conditions that you're subjected to, it consider particular sociological and psychological factors against the backdrop in the history of slavery, and that was an oppressive course. Now, I know what they're saying, but you know, I got a young brother in my, in my youth jobs program. I had 100 youth in the youth jobs program, 25 of them was doing that. I got a little brother, he said, brother, what they talking about? <laughs> you know? So they don't, but my point is, I said, hey, I understand what you're talking about, but you gotta break that stuff down. He's a youth, you know, a 16 year old, et cetera, boom, 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 and we try to educate them. This is the Warm Poverty Program, whatever, et cetera. I'm the community liaison, et cetera, boom, boom. My point though, you see, the res resistance, is me quitting my job and setting up a youth jobs program. We call it a tutorial program in North Richmond, California. I pay these kids minimum wage was one well, one twenty-five an hour. In the summer they work for thirty-six hours a week. In the winter they work for twenty hours a week doing school. And we set that as the first program. It's one thing to sit up and talk and so-called armchair revolutionaries and boom, boom, boom. But it's another thing is to go out here and do something. What's amazing to me about the Black Panther Party is that you had youth from like 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old that were starting chapters across the country. They started, nobody started on the they My organization spread like wildfire after Martin Luther King was killed. That's why in a matter of seven, eight months, right around to Nixon getting elected, I had organized 5,000 brothers and sisters into the Black Panther Party in 49 chapters and branches that is, you have a standing office in that community or city, in that where you and wherever you guys was, etc. All across the United States of America. This is what the powers now. Our Black Panther Party newspaper started out on what? 16-page tabloid. You know, we put the 10-point program in there, boom, 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 and get writers. 
Now you're right, the very, very good first writer we had was Big Man Owen Howard, ex-military United States Air Force, in college, and he was a writer. His brother was a righteous writer. He would do good right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, you know how he got that history? He got sisters, because he was a pretty boy. You know? <laughs> He hated the fact that he was a pretty boy. He had a real complex about that. But my point is, he would hit on these sisters. <laughs> Melvin Newton, his brother, he's as old as I am. He's seven years older than me. I'm seven years older than him. Told me that Bobby's problem with Huey. And he said, Huey would have F's and E's all through high school. And, you know, he, he, he bad problems with, with, with my other brother who comes out from Los Angeles. And uh, I, he, he, he came to me and said the counselors told him he'd never be college material. And he says, and I told him he got to get into American college and learn to buckle down and learn to write what have you said. But prior to that, he would have been shortchanging you know, little criminal acts and stuff to find out about. They said, you know, but I found this out from Melvin. He says, but then that's, that's why you met him, you know, after he'd been in college for over two years. I says, I says, he says, but Melvin, he's really had a problem. But then I met you with boom, you know, I, I'm not, my core course is engineering design, math, and anthropology. I couldn't take but nine credit hours because I got a full-time job at the Gemini Missile Program, 4 p.m. to 12 midnight. I'm doing electromagnetic field black light non-struck testing for all engine branches of the Gemini Missile Program, all three stages of exhaust housing. I'm doing, I, mean, I work in the engineering department. This is high-tech shit. <laughs> So when you start talking about doing something, I have to organize and start doing the real thing. And I'm not going to sit up here and, and be some cheap uh, armchair revolutionary. And I'm not saying the armchair revolutionaries don't have some degree of sincerity about trying to change things. It's just that I, well, I'm just not going to sit around here. I'm going to organize the people. And, and, and one of the things I've noticed is that the young folks you had in your organization, they were very bright, very well informed. Most of was sisters. Yes. <laughs> to hear the rest of the segment, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org, or listen to future shows of the Hudson Mohawk magazine. For those just tuning in, I'm Kalen McPherson. And I'm David Moore. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. 
We looked into our archives and found this interview with our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry. Willie talks about black history. My name is Willie Terry. Uh, today we will have a special labor segment on uh, black history and the labor movement. Uh, before I get started, I just want to uh, re- read something. This is a uh, this this is uh, today I'm gonna talk to you about uh, Black History and uh, this is Black History Month and um, and labor history. But uh, I'm just gonna talk a little bit about Black History uh, for this segment. And during the course of uh, February, we'll talk a little bit about the labor history in terms of Black History Month. But I just want to start off by saying hardly a day passes without some mention of Africa in the newspaper, radio, television. But such discussion of Africa, especially about the struggle for independent liberation and revolution, has not always been the case. Prior to the liberation struggle of the late 1950s, the most widely presented image of Africa in the mass media and in a textbook was that scene in Tarzan movie, Primitive and Savage People who ate nice white missionaries or each other, but who were so inferior that they could always be beaten single-handed by Tarzan. Of course, this view was symbolic to the colonial domination of Africa. Now, many black people in the United States accepted this myth of African inferiority and refused to identify with the continent of their ancestors. But today, this has changed considerably. Most black people today accept the rich heritage of their ancestral continent, a heritage of culture and struggle. Now, uh, I'm taking a class in African-American history, and um, one of the things we did talk about was Africa. And just to make some points about that, and the reason I read this is that black history don't, didn't start from America. It started in Africa. Matter of fact, all history started in Africa. And I just want to point that out just to let people know that when we talk about uh, Black History Month, we're not talking about just black history in America. Today is February the 1st, and this is the beginning of Black History Month, or as some would say, African-American History Month. Now, also on this date, uh, well, let me just say right here, I'm, I'm a part of a study group, uh, kids, uh, we're uh, going over a book called Asada Shakur, and I had asked them, you know, what was the significance of this date. <laughs> well, but we didn't uh, do the study group today, but uh, now they're going to know the answer. On this date, uh, the uh, sit-in movement was started in Greensboro, North Carolina, by four students of North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University. Now, they staged an all-day sit-in at, Woolwork, at the Woolworks lunch counter. Now, knowing that they wouldn't be served because of the color of their skin, but they, but they was protesting the southern system of segregation, and they wanted to desegregate the Woolworths lunch counter. Now, this led to a massive sit-in movements throughout the South, known as the February the 1st movement, that would bring an end to the system of segregation, along with the Freedom Riders and the Civil Rights Movement. Now, Black History Month was started as Negro History Week by Carter G. Wilson on February the 7th, 1926. It was just a week at that point. And Dr. Wilson came to be known as the father of, black history, of the Black History Movement. Now, he was educated at Barrow College, the University of Chicago, 
the University of Paris, and he's got his Ph.D. from Harvard University in 1912. Now, his parents were ex-slaves, and he didn't even enter high school until he was uh, 20 years old. Now, Dr. Carter uh, took black history out of the classroom and put it into the black community. Now, he had hoped that, that this would encourage better relationship between blacks and whites in America, as well as inspire young blacks to celebrate the accomplishment and contribution of their ancestors. Now, why he chose the month of February is because uh, that was the uh, birthday of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. And it also was the date of the Emancipation Proclamation that supposed to free the slaves. Now, one of the uh, key books that he wrote, and he was a writer too, he wrote a lot of books, and he did a lot of studying. Uh, it's, one is called The Miseducation of the Negro. If anybody haven't heard of it, you should get it. It's a good book, and it, and, and it really shows you uh, how uh, the uh, education system here should be entwined with Africa, Africa, uh, and how education is, is being, uh, uh, how blacks are being miseducated uh, based on the American uh, system of education. Um, now, when uh, this happened, uh, uh, because of Dr. Carter, uh, black students start calling for black studies in the uh, colleges, black and African studies in the college. And out of that, you know, came Kwanzaa, because those were students in, in college, and the Black Panthers, you know, uh, came, out, came about. And... Uh, Black studies were set up in the various colleges, and they was called Black Studies or African American uh, Studies Departments. And also, black workers began to organize caucuses in unions to fight against discriminatory policies inside the union and and on the job. And this was all done because of you know Carter G. Wilson, you know, encouraging us to uh, study our history. The Civil Rights Movement came about, and not only did it come about, but it has had it began to develop an ideological basis for the movement, meaning that they start connecting the movement all over the, the the country and the world, based on the study of uh, of history. Um, now, who should take black studies? That's the question. Is it just for black people? No, black studies should be learned by. White people, black people, black workers, white workers, uh, people that are coming to this country, uh, uh, people that are going into government, you know, going to work for the government, whether they are making or implementing policy, they should have knowledge of the black experience. All the future legislators, administrators, and mayors, police, should be required to take African-American studies because much of their Legislative and policy-making uh, activities will be dealing with black people. And similar people in business, and I always mention labor, should take African-American studies. Black people constitute a growing market for business, and they are an essential component in the trade union movement. And now in uh, 1978, uh, Jimmy Carter was the first president to issue a uh, President of Proclamation to recognize Black History Month at the time that black would celebrate their history. 
Um, now, black people are going to celebrate their history, whether or not Jimmy Carter is that, that proclamation we're going to celebrate. Yeah, you know, but at that time, that gave some more legitimate to everybody in the country, you know, uh, celebrating. Now, black studies has uh, uh, changed over time. Now, sometimes some call it uh, African American Study History Month, and some call it Black Liberation Month. So, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's uh, learn about the history of black people. Um, now, why do we study this history? Now, we don't learn history just for history's sake. You know, we learn history because history is there to show us. Talk show us about the future because in the future it shows us how to change the future, and that's the thing. You learn history to change the future, not to stay stagnant. Now, to the audience, I just want to say that I hope that uh, you uh, go to some of the Black History Month programs that are being held throughout the region, uh, throughout the capital region, and learn some of this uh, information. I hope you uh, take some of the courses in some of the colleges to learn about uh, black history and, uh, and, and the history of work, working people in this country. Because uh, when black people were brought here, that's what we were uh, brought here for, to work. <laughs> and uh, that's what we've been doing ever since. So uh, I just want to end by saying at the next uh, segment uh, next week, uh, we're going to talk about worker history in relation to Black History Month. And I hope you tune in. Thank you. Going to have three more installments of this? Yeah, all, all this month we're going to be talking about uh, Black History since this whole month. This is Black History Month. This is the shortest month, so the deal with Black History, but we're going to try to talk about it as much as possible, some aspects. For more Black History pieces, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. We have with us in the studio, Sean Collins. Sean has been active in the local chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. He is also president-treasurer of the Troy Area Labor Council, AFL-CAO, and organizer for SEIU Local 200 United. Sean will share his extensive experience with these associations and identify current initiatives. Welcome to the studio, Sean. Thank you for having me. Sean, how did you move in this direction in your journey of life? <laughs> uh, my uh, father uh, was uh, was a Marine, and my my mom was you know come from like a working class family. My mom was a was a Union flight attendant. We moved around a lot, and um, just sort of from that experience, growing up in like military towns and uh, sort of. Uh, you know, encountering the you know folks in, in those in those communities, and then coming to school, coming to college here in, in upstate New York, moving back to upstate New York, and going to school at U Albany, and meeting a lot of faculty and graduate student instructors and other students. I just sort of over time got more involved in organizations along these lines. The <clears throat> members have confidence in you and in, in electing you to the, to these offices. What? What does those op- what does the responsibilities of those offices entail for you? So, as as president of the Troy Labor Council, um, I you know I primarily you know sort of serve as like a facilitator and uh, uh, you know uh, sort of you know spearhead you know to, uh, different you know our different efforts and make sure that we're just moving the you know on our various goalposts month to month. 
on whatever the various items that we're working on and then also just trying to wrangle our delegates and our community allies and partners to show up to various you know actions rallies pickets whatever's going on and you know in regards to the labor movement locally so for those who don't know about the the uh, democratic socialists of america can you tell us a little bit about that Sure. Yeah. So the the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, you know, uh, it uh, had it saw a resurgence in in you know 2015, 2016 with uh, you know the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, Dem- or, you know, campaign to, to become the Democratic nominee in the primary, that was ultimately unsuccessful. But uh, there was this massive you know influx of members into the organization, and um, locally that ha- that transpired as well, and so. We formed a, a chapter, one of, gosh, I don't even know how many chapters there are across the country, but one of one of many chapters, and uh, and we've been organizing uh, around sort of left socialist principles in the capital district, and in particular in Troy since then. Do you have particular campaigns that are your emphasis now? Sure, uh, you know, I th- so I think the the big thing that we've been focusing on recently, I, I think, uh, you know, as uh, as DSA has grown and uh, the, nationally, and uh, as uh, as you know, as its members have, you know, with this membership influx, more folks have gotten involved with various, you know, backgrounds and experiences. One of the things that you know has seen a, a big shot in the arm has been a, a lot of the work that folks have been doing around housing. I can't speak to it ex- too much. I'm not I'm not super uh, clued in on it myself, but I know that like uh, folks have really gotten involved in that in that work. And there's a lot of stuff happening at the state level around like right to counsel, um, you know, good cause eviction. Uh, and, 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 you know, just other tenant protections and rent control, these sorts of things. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of the backstory of, to the organizing of the local DSA chapter? Yeah. So actually the Troy DSA used to be a part of like the broader, like capital district, uh, DSA chapter, which, you know, does exist here locally. Um, but we formed our, our, we Mm. formed our own chapter, Mm. gosh, maybe around like 2018, 2019 to sort of zero in on particular the, the particular issues that DSA works on nationally and across the region here in Troy and Rensselaer County because you know oftentimes I think in the capital district things always sort of always just go back to Albany and specifically back to like the capital um, and uh, things that happen at the municipal level in all the various communities across the across the capital district sort of get lost in that in that in that shuffle. Now, the Troy Area Labor Council represents how many members in Rensselaer County or Troy? So, so that's a good question. It's, it's actually like a clarification I have to make a lot. Troy Labor Council doesn't have any members. We have affiliated unions. So there are about 40 or so uh, affiliated unions um, who, t- all told, represent uh, about 13,000 uh, people in Troy and Rensselaer County. Um, and, and so I, I'm a delegate for one of those affiliated unions, SCIU, the Service Employees International Union, Local 200 United. I don't even remember how many members we represent here in Rensselaer County, but we represent about 15,000 across upstate New York. Is your membership increasing? Uh, so, yes, yes, it, generally. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a struggle over the, over the years with so many assaults on organizing. Uh, what, what, are the, what are the issues that that uh, the affiliates are bringing to the table. Yeah, I mean, you know, oftentimes it's issues that affect their membership, right? Um that are, you know, that are, you know, impacting their members directly like uh I don't you know they they themselves aren't an affiliate of of our of our labor council, but like the Troy firefighters have been dealing with, 
you know, understaffing uh, for years, uh, despite the fact that the number of housing units in the city of Troy has increased with the new apartment buildings and so on. Uh, their staffing has remained flat, but they've seen like a massive influx in the number of calls. Like it just, it's just like a skyrocketing in the number of calls. Um, but they don't have the staff and the and the personnel to to really respond to those. So the number of fires we've seen as a result, they usually have to call for uh, support from other local fire departments. Um, so that's you know so we you know we've tried to support those folks. Um, you know other examples would be like uh, you know RPI uh, resident assistance. Uh, these are undergraduate workers. Uh, they just organized. Uh, they just, you know, organized and announced their intent to unionize uh, last week. So our delegates went out to show support for their rally, demanding recognition of their union from the the, the new president, Martin Schmidt, there, uh, and um, you know, and stuff along those lines. Sort of supporting Starbucks workers, supporting Amazon workers. Throughout uh, the history of the AFL-CIO, there's been a tension between supporting the needs and workers of their trade versus labor reform mm. what what's been the emphasis that you've seen and at what percentage of time is given to you, one or other or both when you when you mean labor reform like union, efforts like around like union democracy these yeah. Words, yeah yeah I, I think we, we, as the AFL, it's, you know, it's not our place to intervene in, like, you know, the local union, uh, you know, activities. I think, you know, our members are generally sympathetic and uh, uh, to, uh, to those efforts to democratize their unions and make sure that they are uh, run uh, and, and focus on the issues affecting their rank and file. Um, but we try to stick to the, the, the issues affecting, you know, the, the, the members themselves on the whole. Uh, and, uh, and the fights that they're they're waging with, with their boss, their manager, what have you. Are there any um, efforts at cooperative worker community <coughs> communities or or projects? Not that I'm aware of, really locally. I'm sure there are, but that doesn't mean I'm not I'm aware. <laughs> unfortunately, it'd be nice to see more of it. That's for sure. <laughs> With one minute left, um, is there anything else you'd like to add or tell our listeners or any questions? I mean, the one thing I would say, you know, of note and, and I think of in particular of importance is actually their RPI residence assistance and their organizing efforts. Um, these are undergraduate workers. These are, these are 18, 19 year olds um, who are trying to organize. And, um, and in a union, it would be the first organized group of workers on campus if they were to be successful. And you know, I've lived in the shadow of RPI for a long time. It's a completely non-union campus that um, uh, provide should provide, you know, good, you know, decent jobs to uh, uh, residents here in Troy. But unfortunately, it's non-union, and uh, and, uh, and instead, it acts as this like sort of parasite on the city of Troy. And I think it's exciting that these these undergraduate workers are are standing up to that, and hopefully, are just establishing the the, the first toehold there. Sean, we thank you so much for the insights you've brought and the opportunities for us to explore these other areas and to it, support it, your work. If people want to get involved or find more information, where can they find more information? TroyLaborCouncil.org, um, and we're on Twitter and other social media, which I don't know offhand, but you could find it on our website. <laughs> thank you, Sean Collins, for talking with us today. This week, Tom Francis talks with Carol Lee Bennett, who is a poet and writer and has been putting words to paper since elementary school. Tom and Carol Lee talk about poems, family, what inspires hers, and putting together her manuscript. 
Carol Lee Bennett is a poet and writer who's been putting words to paper since she was in elementary school. In the early 2000s, she and Jill Craman began sharing their work at local open mics. Over the years, Carol Lee had been featured at many of the readings in the region, and on February 22, 2010, it was her time to headline the long-running Poets Speak Loud series at the Lark Tavern. In that set, she read her piece, How to Save Yourself, explaining that it was part of an upcoming manuscript. In our conversation, we talk about that poem, family, what inspires her, and putting together that manuscript. And this is the last one from that manuscript, and it does come near the end as I have it organized. Those things are always up for debate. How to save yourself. Hold an invisible sword in each hand. Make slashing motions across your body, one arm at a time, until the letter X blackens the space in front of you. You have cut an opening in the clear membrane between the now you and the next you. Lunge through the hole. Turn around and grab the veil. Crumple it like a sheet of paper and send it skittering across the pavement. Walk away from the shedding site and strut around in your new skin. It is no costume. This is no masquerade. You are someone without doubt, a woman who's always wanted to be just as she is. Let the thrill of wearing yourself ripple over you, the aftershock of orgasm. Follow it with your hands, rubbing off flecks of paint, the tiniest remnants of old cracked faces. Replay this ritual in your mind. Another you is always available. Resort to the cutting only in emergencies. No one knows how many pages you can tear out before your story ends. I had totally forgotten about that, and it's fascinating to me because I'm currently writing about there being more than one version of ourselves that we have access to. So blast from the past. Obviously, I'm still thinking about some of those same things. Um, It's also interesting to hear in that poem some aspirational confidence. I definitely wasn't that confident, but I think that poem is about saying what's possible. I wanted to know more about that theme and how it plays a part in her current work. Yes, I have a manuscript that I call my Gertie manuscript. Gertie is a term of endearment, I believe, that my dad used to talk about the clumsy women in his life. We're always (laughs) tripping over things and stubbing toes and things like that. So He would say, watch out, Gert, or way to go, Gertie, or things like that. (laughs) And so at some point during the pandemic, I started sort of manifesting the presence of Gertie, embracing that clumsy side of myself and talking to Gertie with letter poems. And so as I did that, it just became this interesting exercise in who we present to the world, who we present to ourselves what we do to survive, how it protects us, how it gets us through. So that's what I'm working on right now. A lot of the poets I've spoken to have said that they started writing poetry in high school or even college. Carolee talks about her experiences with poetry in elementary school and revisiting poetry in college. She also talks about putting poetry aside until she became a mother. As a kid in elementary school, I wrote and illustrated little books and they were very rhymy. So I guess you could say it started then, but primarily then for some reason, it was about hanging out with my best friend who was my next door neighbor and 
things about leprechauns and rainbows and bunnies. I don't know, you know, second grade stuff, but that died pretty quickly. Didn't go anywhere. I didn't become famous that way. And I didn't visit poetry again until college. And then I only dabbled. I was took myself way too seriously in college. And the writing classes that I did were primarily in journalism or research type things, but I did have one creative writing class and I kick myself now because it was with the then current poet laureate of West Virginia. So it was a tremendous opportunity that I was just too young and stupid to take advantage <laughs> of. Um, and then I kind of let that go and really focused on writing in a professional setting for, for work. I did public relations and that kind of thing. And on the side, I would try to do essays or tell myself I would do novels that I would do fiction and it just didn't go anywhere until I had kids and I realized that the type of thought that was necessary to develop these bigger ideas like novels and essays it required me to have extended periods of time at least the way that my brain operated whereas poetry I do poetry excuse me I do poetry writing in fragments and so it was much easier to write down a couple of fragments and get interrupted and come back to it. So it became something that I could do when I had young kids at home. Carolee then talks about motherhood not being a theme in her work. I typically don't write about them or about motherhood. It's not a primary theme. It's more like, a, I don't know if ghost in the machine is the right word, but it's it's there primarily in terms of the expectations that it puts on um, parents, women in particular as mothers, and about the disparity in that, how it, you know, it, it feels like an unfair sort of, well, it's an imbalance, I guess, is a better way to say it. So it exists in terms of the theme of not measuring up to what people expect of you. And the difficulty of not naturally being that person, but also resenting those expectations that come. So it creates a, a rub and an irritant for me in, in life and in work. I think we're always supposed to say, and it's absolutely true, that there have been so many rewards about being a parent and a mother. And I love those little bundles of joy, as you said, mm -hmm. very, very much. It's just that in my work, it becomes a source of um, struggle and difficulty because I didn't come naturally to it. And it was very hard for me when they were babies. It's much easier for me now that they're older and have terrific conversations and they've turned into wonderful people, but it didn't come naturally to me. And that's, that's a tough place. It's a lonely place to be. So what does inspire her writing and poetry specifically? I do look at things, I think, through the lens of where we struggle as humans and how we get by. There's so many pressures on us, whether it is motherhood or the demands of capitalism or the difficulty of romance and relationships. Those are probably the biggest sources, but I think the common theme there for me is just how I'm clumsy in the world and might not look like it looks for everybody else. And I embrace that both in life and in the poems. I think that um, that the poem that you opened with talked a little bit about a veil or behind the veil. 
And I think that the stuff that we struggle with or that we're clumsy with gives us a peek behind that veil or that curtain. And people may not care about the specifics, like whether it's motherhood or divorce or the death of my mom, for example, which plays prominently in some of my poems. They don't necessarily care about those circumstances, but what they do care about is what we see when we're behind that veil, when we're sunk into those those moments and we get a glimpse of, oh crap, this is this is a big part of, of life. This is a difficult thing. And where we either find strength in that or further challenges, I think those undercurrents of experience, what people care about when we're getting a peek behind that curtain. And what about that manuscript that she's been working on for so long? Uh, it was interesting to hear the recording. And I talk about a manuscript then in 2010, because I would have said my first big serious attempt at a manuscript was 2013. Um, I've had five or six or 10 over the over the last 15 or 20 years, but I've not, there was only one or two of them that I was serious about submitting. One of them was a finalist in some contests, but was never picked up. And so I really pressed pause on all of all of that. I would send out individual poems and had some success with with individual pieces, but I have definitely been focused the last couple of years on this Gertie manuscript. And I did a lot of work over the weekend, actually reorganizing and cutting things and putting new things in. And I think it's probably 95% of the way there with the writing and the work that I want to include in it. So I was excited to see that I'm nearly at the at the revision stage. So hopefully Gertie will start to go to editors inboxes and contests in 2023. For Mohawk Hudson Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. This is a weekly poetry bucket from Tom Francis. Listen every Thursday for poetry content or go to our website, mediasanctuary.org, and in the search bar, put poetry. And that's our show. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Kaylin McPherson. And I'm David Moore. Our engineer is Kaylin McPherson. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Headlines from Mark Dunley, segment producers Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, and Tom Francis, and your co-host, me, David Moore, and Kaylin McPherson. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. And remember, radio isn't dying. It's growing into the future. Until next time.